Uh, if you have not been with us the previous weeks, this is the fourth and final sermon in a series, Your God is Too Small, because we have uh, unwittingly shrunken God uh, to fit our notions, and we have missed out a great deal. And so we have, uh, for all of the visual learners and visual worshipers, uh, each Sunday we have uh, introduced a new banner. Uh, the first week, El Shaddai, uh, the mighty God, the God of the mountains. We talked about God's greatness and yet his tender provision. We talked the next week about Yahweh, the God who keeps promises and delivers, the rock of our salvation. Last week we talked about the Holy One from Isaiah, the God who is unique above us and calling us to accountability. He is King of Kings. And this morning we add the fourth banner, He is Lord of Lords. He is all in all, as we will hear the Apostle Paul say in the Scripture lesson this morning. So I invite you, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to begin reading in verse 19, and then I'll read through verse 28, and you may follow on the screen. This is the new RSV, and uh, we will hear God's Word as the Apostle Paul spoke to the Corinthian believers. I invite you to stand, if you're able, as God's Word comes among us. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ... We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection... It is plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. When you get ready to take a road trip, it's good to know what the next town is, where the next turn is. But when you're getting ready to take a road trip, it's also good to step back and look at the big picture and look at the final destination to look where you're going. Uh, it's good to look at the end from the beginning. And so it is for us this morning. We have been thinking together about a great big God, a God who is more than we have imagined. And that ultimately leads us to think about not just the next day or the next step, but about the end of history. And I would ask you to, to note carefully that the scripture I read this morning from 1 Corinthians 15 uh, is not just about what happens to us individually when we die. Certainly that's embedded there. 
and we're grateful for that hope. But it's not really a passage of Scripture just about what happens to us individually when we die. It is a passage of Scripture about the end of time, about the conclusion of history, about God's ultimate goal of where God is bringing everything. And Paul likes the image, the agricultural image, of first fruits. He says that when Christ, who is our first fruits, appears, then he will later bring the rest of the harvest with him. Now, first fruits uh, was a practice in biblical days where the first bundle of ripened barley or wheat or whatever, the first crop that ripened was bundled up and brought into the temple as an offering to God saying, this is the choicest, this is the best. It's the first, but God, it is yours. Uh, think for analogy purposes, the first vine-ripened tomato that you have in the summer, if the deer don't eat them, which is another sermon altogether. Uh, but think about how delicious it is and how wonderful it is. So the first fruit is always the best, but there's another point that Paul is making, that, there, that there's always a lapse of time between the presentation of the first fruit and the rest of the harvest. There's a time lag. And so for us, he says, Jesus is raised from the dead as the first fruits. But later on, those of us, will take, those of us who know him will take part in the general resurrection at the end of history, and we are living in that, in that in-between time. And Paul says in verse 23 that Christ, the first fruits at his coming, and the word coming is the Greek word parousia, uh, which means appearing or uh, showing up or arrival. It was used uh, of the kings and emperors of that day who would visit a village or a town, and the town would clean up, the town would get ready, and they would welcome their king as he came to them, and they would bow down in subjection. And Paul says, this parousia, this appearing of our king will happen, and we will all be subject to him. He will bring everyone and everything under subjection to him, Paul says boldly. And I believe that's earthly as well as spiritual rulers and authorities that will be brought under his authority. And there's this very tender uh, reference in this scripture that I just read where even Jesus Christ himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords, will bow in subjection to God so that God might be all in all. God might be all in all, meaning no more opposition to God anywhere at the end of history. All in all. Every being will bow to the king. All in all. The goal of history is consummated. All in all, what Jesus inaugurated at his crucifixion and resurrection with great time delay is finally completed all in all as history is wrapped up. Powerful imagery. And it helps us to remember that that's one of the reasons we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's one of the reasons we pray at the end of that prayer, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Now it also helps us when we're thinking about important, large passages of Scripture to think about what this meant to the people who originally received the correspondence, the letter, the Corinthians. 
Let me remind you of a few things about the city of Corinth, major port city in Greece, uh, major shipping lanes. Because of the arrangement geographically, people came from all over the known world. There were all kinds of languages spoken. Uh, there were all kinds of a mix of nationalities. And because of that, all kinds of ideas and, and uh, sort of an anything goes kind of culture. And morally, Corinth was a mess. And the followers of Jesus in Corinth were having trouble figuring out how to follow Jesus in such a nasty world. They were trying to figure out how not to be discouraged and feel overwhelmed, how to be in the city of Corinth without letting the city of Corinth infect them spiritually. And it was tough. Uh, one of the things that made it tough is that there were just so many gods around. You know, we've been talking about your god is too small. There are always gods around, just in first century they were more obvious. There was a temple in Corinth to the god Aphrodite, the goddess Aphrodite. There was a temple to uh, Apollo. There was a temple to Poseidon. But the shrine that was just a little bit taller than all the others was the shrine to Emperor Caesar. That's not a coincidence, right? Emperor Caesar's shrine was just a little taller than everybody else's. And into that kind of world, the Apostle Paul had the temerity to announce, then comes the end when every ruler will be subjected to Christ and he will hand over the kingdom to God the Father who will be all in all. Can you imagine saying that in a world with so many gods and with the, the Roman shrine there. And that's what makes our other scripture text this morning so important. Revelation chapter 11 beginning in verse 15. Then the seventh angel, angel blew his trumpet and there were loud cries in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. Then the 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God singing, we give you thanks, Lord God Almighty, who were and who are and who were for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Wow. King of kings, Lord of lords, and God becomes our all in all. See, the early followers of Jesus were catching flack from two directions when they called Jesus Lord. When they called Jesus Lord, they were catching flack from the Jews who said, that's blasphemy, there's only one God, and you should never call anyone else Lord. And they were catching it from the Romans, the pagans of the day, who were saying, that's sedition. You're not patriotic. Caesar is Lord. But the Christians kept insisting, no, Jesus is Lord. And God will one day become our all in all. And what I just shared with you is grounds. We would have the right to sing the Hallelujah Chorus every Sunday. Because it's true every Sunday and every day. That he's King of Kings, 
and Lord of Lords. But why does any of this matter? It matters because we need a great big God to help us in times when we're afraid. We need a great big God in the times when we feel like we've failed. We need a great big God when we feel like we're outnumbered and life is not fair. The Corinthian situation was such that socioeconomically there were very few rich people, but they were really rich. And there were lots and lots of poor people and there was hardly any middle class. And historians believe that perhaps as much as one half of Corinthian population was slave. Now you think about that. Paul was writing to them and saying, I know life seems upside down. I know that your world seems like it is unfair. But the Lord Jesus Christ will one day hand over every kingdom to God and God will be all in all and God is going to take everything that's upside down and God's going to turn it right side up and make it okay. N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, British scholar, has written a great book uh, about this topic and he said, followers of Jesus suffer theological jet lag he said, we suffer theological jet lag because we're on the airplane and it's darkness outside, but we set our clocks for the time zone that we're going to. And when we set our clocks for the time zone of our arrival place, we are living in hope, even though we're struggling with jet lag. We are living in hope. And that hope gives us courage in the darkness. That gives us courage to be Christ's people even in the darkness. Let me give you an example of that. I've talked uh, the recent Sundays about the Baptist World Alliance and uh, the gathering in the Bahamas uh, last summer, uh, a powerful experience. Uh, one of the things that happened is that uh, Venezuelan Christians, Venezuelan Baptists, uh, came to the conference. They were flown in uh, with special effort so that we might hear from them about the enormous persecution they are experiencing, about the devastation, the privation, uh, lack of water, lack of housing, refugees fleeing the country, long lines everywhere, and believers being persecuted because of the brutalities there of the regime. And we heard story after story. But here's the fascinating thing in talking with the Venezuelans. You could hardly get them to talk about that. We had to keep pulling it out of them because every time they'd start on that, they'd end up talking about the doors that opened to share Christ because of their struggles. They started talking about all the opportunities they were having to minister to people. They started talking about all the ways they witnessed to Christ for people who were suddenly open and willing to listen because they didn't have anything else to fall back on and they were no longer being supported uh, with all of those false props of material possessions. And they were, they were talking about their opportunities because they had set their clocks to a time zone of hope. 
and they were living with courage. You remember our church's new vision statement? We've been talking a lot about our mission statement, but the vision is the preferred future. Our, our vision is that we are compelled to be Christ's love and hope. We want to be that people that, that we're just driven by Christ's love and hope. And hope's a tricky thing because most people think of hoping as wishing. But hope is not an emotion. In that same book, N.T. Wright reminds us, hope is not a feeling. Hope is a virtue, a spiritual practice. You have to practice hope, like the Venezuelans were practicing hope. You know, the people in the orchestra, they didn't just show up at orchestra one day and said, I feel like playing the clarinet. I feel like playing the violin. It takes practice and practice and more practice. If you play soccer, you know, you need to just show up one day and say, I saw it on TV, and it feels like a fun thing to do. It takes practice and practice and more practice. Hope is something we practice as we set our clocks to the time zone of God's plan. And every time we fail to trust God, what we're really saying is, I don't think God is big enough for this situation. Think about it. Every time we fail to trust God, we're really saying, God, you're just not big enough to, be, to adequately meet my needs. Every time we fail to trust the Lord, and really turn things over to Him, our lives, our futures. We're saying we don't trust God's bigness, and we don't trust His love. But remember how we've ended every sermon in this series with the reminder that God is love. God's a great big God. He's big enough. God is love. That summarizes everything else God is. God not just has love, God is love. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to die for us. 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 and 10. God is love. And God is big enough for whatever happens. Because God is our all in all. Our all in all. Thank you.